interpretations have to be resolved, of course. Uh, but still, it is quite amazing that this is, uh, uh, this is what is going on. Uh, so I personally, I, I don't really have much doubt that you know, when the Buddha spoke about these things, uh, he basically had a very direct understanding of how the universe operates. Uh, and it is very similar to the ideas of modern cosmology. Uh. So based on this, uh, I, you know, the way that uh, uh, modern cosmology looks at the universe, they're trying to figure out how it all hangs together, whether we started at the Big Bang, uh, what's going to happen to the universe at the end, is it just going to dissipate forever, is there going to be a new Big Bang at some stage, is there going to be a big crunch, all of these matters are still up for discussion in cosmology. There are certain favorite theories, I'm sure you heard about some of these, the multiverse and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but I am going to make a prediction here. Uh, Right? I'm going to be very bold and make a prediction. It's, of course, madness to make predictions, but it's nice to be mad sometimes. So the, my prediction is that eventually uh, cosmology is going to fall back uh, on this idea of expanding and contracting universes. Right, One big bang, big crunch, or if not big crunch, one way, one way in which the big bang happens over again and over again and over again and over again. Uh, Quite likely, big bang, big crunch, big bang, big crunch. This is my prediction. So I challenge you all, keep, keep an eye out on those scientific journals, right? Read a little bit about cosmology, see what happens in the next few decades, and then let's see if science is heading in that way. Right now, most scientists don't believe in this, right? So it's completely out of the scope. So if this is what happens, then we, you know, it's very interesting. So let's see what, what, how things pan out and how things move in that direction. Yeah. Anyway, that's my first prediction. Right? I'm going to make at least one more in the, in the, in the, in the course of this talk. Yeah. So then we can sort of you know, compare notes in a few years', few years time. Yeah. So this is the first thing that I found very uh, interesting about Buddhist cosmology. Very close similarity to modern ideas of cosmology. Yeah. There's a second thing, and this is more uh, coming down to more uh, small-scale cosmology. Yeah. And this is where the Buddha talks about different kind of world systems. And these world systems that the Buddha is talking about, essentially each world system, first of all he talks about the planet Earth, right? The ideas of the planet Earth in those days were very quite simple and basic compared to what they are now. But basically they had an idea of this realm, this Earth that we are on. And then they had an idea of the moon. And then of course they had the sun, right? And the Buddha says this is like a unit. These three are like a unit. There's no reference to planets or anything like that, except maybe the morning star, I think, in a few places. But basically, that is the unit called a world system. And essentially, it is a solar system. And all the beings that exist depending on that world system. And then the Buddha says, and this is, again, very interesting from a modern scientific point of view. He says that there isn't just one world system out there. He says there is a thousandfold world system. In fact, it, not only is there a, th a thousandfold world system, but beyond that, there is a millionfold world system. And beyond that, there is a billionfold world system. Right? So what the Buddha is saying is that there isn't just one solar system with suns and planets and moons and all these things. There are heaps of solar systems out there. And according to the Buddha, the solar system that he's talking about are solar systems where there is life, where there are beings of various types connected to that solar system. Right? And Again, this is very interesting because in modern cosmology, it's only very recently that we have been starting to see the planets, right, orbiting suns. If you follow some of the newspaper articles, sometimes you will see that they discover another planet, right, and they say, well, this one isn't kind of the right bandwidth, close enough to the sun, there might be life on this one, and they're speculating about life out there. But so it's only very recently that we have discovered that there isn't even is such a thing as planets around other stars in the solar system. And if you go back to uh, Europe, Europe of the Middle Ages, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember your school uh, learning about these issues, but uh, according to the uh, European ideas in the Middle Ages, they had this idea of what, it, what was known as the firmament. Uh, you know, remember the firmament uh, from, the, uh, from, from school? Uh, and the firmament is an idea they had before the kind of modern astronomical revolution started to happen. The idea that it's like a sphere, right? Or an arc around the, around the Earth, whatever you consider the Earth. You know, here, basically, the sky is like an arc over you. Uh, 
And that arc is only a few hundred meters or a few kilometers up. And in that sphere, you have these little light bulbs, right? Uh, that are kind of stuck in the sphere around you. And these little light bulbs that are stuck in the sphere around you, uh, those, of course, are the stars, right? Uh, because the stars are always fixed, right? You look up every night and they move according to very regular patterns. Uh, so that's the firmament. Uh, and that was what people believed in the Middle Ages. A very simple, and you could say primitive, but it makes good sense, because if you have no idea of space, it's a very simple solution to the universe. And perhaps, you know, often we prefer the very simple solutions. But they had no idea what was going on. And then you move on to India, which isn't that far away from Europe, right? You had to cross the Middle East to go down to India. Uh, and they had been, the weird thing is that there had been exchanges between Europe and uh, India Long, going a long, long, long way back into the past, back to the Greeks, even prior to the Greeks, uh, there was exchange of trade and ideas between India and Europe. Uh, but of course, when Europe went into the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, of course, all that knowledge was shut out uh, and it was no interest anymore. Uh, so amazing then that 2,000 years prior to the, Middle Ages, the end of the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, there was this man in India, right? This man, we don't really have any much familiarity with him. He, he's not known as the Buddha. He lived in India. And he said that there are these solar systems out there. Not only one or two, but billions of solar systems. And they all have planets going around. There's a sun in the middle. There's a planet. And there's a moon revolving around the planets. And then there are beings living independence of that solar system. Right? It's quite astonishing. That's, what he, that's basically right there in the texts. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I always wondered about, well, okay, the Buddha saw all these beings, he saw that there were all these world systems out there. Uh, so basically he knew there were aliens out there, right? Uh, there are all these aliens out there, that's basically what the Buddha said. Uh, the, there is no Buddhist word for alien, uh, but you wonder what kind of beings he saw. You know, we have this idea that, you know, aliens are kind of weird people, or maybe I shouldn't say people. I might offend somebody if I call them people because they're kind of green and they have antennas and all this kind of weird stuff, right? Uh, kind of science fiction stable. Uh, but it's interesting. What kind of beings did the Buddha actually see? Who are these beings in this alien world? So, and this is my second prediction. And this is, uh, you know, uh, if you look at modern science as well, you will, people will say, yeah, it looks very likely now that there's very likely to be life out there because we found the planets, we know the planets are in the right place. So if life was able to evolve on Earth, why wouldn't it also evolve on these other planets? Right? So what are these beings going to be like? And I say, and I think this is fairly obvious from a Buddhist point of view, that the beings on these planets are going to be very much like us. Why? Because we are in so many ways connected, according to the Buddhist teaching. Because we are connected often mentally, the way we think tends to be the same, same way. The way we view the universe is often the same way. Sometimes you might get reborn on those planets, right? And they might get reborn here. It's very inconvenient if you get reborn among a whole bunch of green, uh, green men and women, or if the green men and women get reborn here. But because we think in the same way, we tend to evolve in the same way, and we tend to have uh, be roughly the same. So this is my second prediction, is that when uh, they eventually discover life out there, and maybe they're able to make contact, right? Uh, remember this movie called Contact many, many years ago, 30 years ago or something, which I saw when I was quite young still, uh, and uh, very scary at that time, although it wasn't a very scary movie at all. Uh, and of course the beings in the movie were really weird beings, light beings with long, thin legs and long, thin arms, you know. Otherwise science fiction would be very boring if they just looked like us. Uh, but uh, uh, the reality is, I think, they are going to be basically like us. So watch that space as well. See what happens in the area of you know, scientific uh, you know, contact or how we're kind of looking at beings out there and see what, what develops. And I predict, again, very foolish, foolish of me to predict this kind of thing, but still, I predict that we're going to find, eventually, we will see that those beings out there are essentially just the same as us. They're not really all that alien after all, right? Uh, they're pretty familiar here. So this is the, uh, the second thing. And uh, there's one last thing in this kind of, not really puzzle, but one last thing, one other discourse by the Buddha, which is also very fascinating. Uh, and this is one of the discourse that really, I think, caught my eye, perhaps the most, uh, 
about the universe and about the uh, how the universe actually functions. Uh, and this is a discourse where the Buddha talks about the sun and about our specific solar system. And he says to the monks that in the future the earth will warm up, right? The sun will become hotter and hotter and hotter. And as the sun becomes hotter, the earth will start to warm up. And he specifically says the first thing is that the plants will start to die, right? Because the plants won't be able to cope with the heat. And of course, because the plants are the bottom of the food chain, if the plants die, everything else also dies, because uh, uh, everything else is based on those plants. And it was interesting, I was looking up a Wikipedia article on this particular topic, just, uh, when was it, this morning perhaps, I had a quick look at it, uh, and I, you know, I googled something like, you know, the, uh, the fate of the earth, uh, you know, as the sun expands, or something like that. Some, some, some kind of thing, and that got me to this Wikipedia article, and I started reading, and the first thing it says, well, you know, the sun is going to get hotter, and then the plants will die, right? Uh, it's almost word for word the same thing I found in this sutta. Again, rather astonishing. Uh, and then the sutta goes on, as the sun becomes warmer, right, it goes through these various stages, the water starts to evaporate, eventually all the oceans disappear, right, everything evaporates, nothing is left. And eventually, it says, it becomes so hot that everything, the whole earth, starts to smolder and smoke and burn in flames, right? Mountain peaks come crashing down, everything disintegrates, everything is burned into nothing, and nothing basically remains. In one place it even says it just all ends up in ash and nothing is left behind. And again, it's, you know, it's incredibly hard to understand how this is possible, because of course modern cosmology, modern astrophysics, or whatever it is, they say precisely that, the sun will expand, and eventually everything on this planet will burn up, there will be nothing left, all there will be will be this smoldering, burning planet, full of smoke and nothing more. Right? We know that, for us it kind of makes sense. But how is it possible that this exists in a text which is two and a half thousand years old, spoken by a man in India who we don't even know who he was basically, right? He had no access to these things. How could he possibly know this? This is like a fact. This is something which is so easy to establish, right? The sun will expand, everything will become hot. And then the Buddha says the same thing, right? And then at the end of that sutta, end of this discourse of the Buddha, the Buddha says, well, who will possibly believe me? Who can possibly believe this except somebody who has seen the truth? In other words, the Buddha realized that you know, this is just wild stuff for most people. Nobody can really believe this. It's just way out there. And because it is way out there, he had to say, you know, but who will actually believe these things? Because it is so, so different from what we, how we're used to looking at the world. So these are some of the uh, some of the things when I read the suttas that kind of stand out, and I think are kind of really, really, really powerful. Uh, and I warned you beforehand when you when you hear all this, you probably think I'm some kind of religious nutcase, uh, because it's the kind of the things that people will often often say, right? Uh, and often there may not be any basis for that. Uh, so one of the things, uh, having looked at all of that and having made my a few predictions about what might happen in the future, having looked at all of that, I just want to briefly discuss. Are there perhaps any alternative interpretations? Is there a way we can explain why these things are there in the discourses of the Buddha that do not invoke some kind of you know, uh, supernatural or different way of looking at the world? And very briefly I want to talk about that. And of course, the first thing that people will often say is that, well, first thing is that it may have been inserted later on. Right? This is kind of the first thing. You know, we, well, a lot of the suttas are ancient, but maybe some of these things were kind of put in there at a later stage. But really, it is a non-starter, because these things are very, very modern ideas of the cosmos. Most of these things were discovered, you know, in the second half of the 20th century, some of these things in the first half of the 20th century. It's very modern ideas. And we know for a fact that these scriptures, these particular suttas, go a long, long, long way back. The particular sutta I was talking, all of these suttas, in fact, are, we can say with a great degree of certainty, go back at the very least to the time of Ashoka, Emperor Ashoka, about 2,300 years ago. These are genuinely ancient texts. And it's very easy to show that through you know, comparative study of different texts and different traditions and, and these things. 
So the idea that it has been inserted later is basically absolutely impossible. Uh, no such thing can actually be the case. Uh, then, of course, there is the other uh, possible explanation that people may have, right? This is the explanation that all of these things are a matter of interpretation. Uh, we have to interpret this text. Uh, when you read this text, how do you actually know that these things are not... How do you know you haven't interpreted these things in the wrong way? Uh, how do we know that we have understood the meaning of the Buddha in the right way? Uh, and actually, one of the... Uh, things which I find, always have found, that stands out in the Buddha's teachings, uh, which makes the Buddha's teachings very different from the vast majority of any teachings you find anywhere else, uh, whether it is uh, philosophical books or books on other religions or whatever it is, uh, is the simplicity and the directness and the ease of understanding of these teachings. Uh, Right? Very often it's very simple prose, it's very easily explained. You open it up, you can understand straight away what's going on. If there is a metaphor, if there is a simile, if there is a parable, if it is a story, it's a simple story with often a very powerful message, but it's easy to understand how it fits in with the surrounding texts around it. There's usually not that much difficulty in interpreting these texts. It's very, very different from the vast majority of ancient texts, which often are stories and things which are, you know, always need to be interpreted to actually give meaning. This is not mythology. This is somebody who very clearly talks about his own experiences and his own understanding of the world. And for this reason, when you read something like, you know, the sun becoming hot, right, and, and eventually burning up the whole earth, there is no doubt about what it means. There, is, there isn't really any alternative explanation to this. I know uh, the, I know the Pali language fairly well. I can read those ancient texts in what is pretty much very close to the language used by the Buddha himself. Uh, and there is, really isn't much doubt about the meaning of these things. Uh, so I would say that the, uh, the idea of, even the idea of interpretation, uh, actually is uh, not really a very likely explanation for how these things are in the, for how these things can be there. Because it is actually quite easy to interpret uh, I would, I would maybe like to maybe add one little thing there because I think this is a very important point. Uh, this idea that the Buddhist texts actually are very easy to understand. Uh, and how many people are sometimes scared of opening a real Buddhist book, right, which goes back to the very beginning, uh, taught by the Buddha himself. They're scared because they think it's too difficult to understand. It's a different culture. It's a long time ago. It's all these kind of things. Uh, how are we going to be able to make sense of this, uh, right? So they're kind of frightened of these ancient books. Uh, but I say, in my experience, uh, it is far easier, this may sound astonishing, but it's far easier to understand the word of the Buddha in the most ancient texts that we have available to us uh, than it is to understand most contemporary teachers. Uh, right? You, sometimes when I read books by a contemporary teacher, not sometimes, most of the time, uh, I often wonder what are they really talking about? Uh, or you know, or sometimes I sort of think I know what it means. Yeah, it probably means this. But I look more carefully and I realize actually it's quite ambiguous. What is it really talking about? Right? So I say that if you want clarity about Buddhism, if you want to understand the Dhamma, if you want to understand what this is all about, go to the Buddha. It's actually clear, it's concise, it's structured, beautiful similes to explain the points, right? It's actually very, very powerful. Uh, you read a modern teacher, sometimes it's kind of feely-feely, it's nice, right? It goes, kind of you feel good afterwards, uh, which of course is nice. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't want to uh, diminish that too much either, but for, to actually, for a real understanding of what's going on, uh, you can't really do better than the word of the Buddha. Huh? So it's actually the reverse, in my opinion, what most people say. Most people say, I want to read these other books first because they're easy to understand. No, they're actually hard to understand. Go to the word of the Buddha. That is what is easy to understand. So interpretation, forget about interpretation. There isn't much interpretation required. So that too, to me, doesn't really work as an explanation. Now the third thing, the third maybe, maybe explanation that can explain these things in the suttas uh, so we don't we can avoid what some people feel uncomfortable if it is some kind of you know a uh, different kind of idea from our ordinary worldviews uh, is that it is just a coincidence right the buddha was talking about these things uh, he had his philosophy about the world he said okay this is the way it is uh, and then by some coincidence it happens to be exactly the same as what we have now uh, right uh, and uh, 
Of course, that is always a possibility. You can't discount that. But the more facts you have, the more things that kind of fit in line with modern ideas, the less likely, of course, a coincidence is. And, of course, one of the main points that we can do, we can compare these ancient Buddhist texts and we can compare them with ancient Buddhist texts uh, that exist you know, from other cultures, other places. And, of course, it is much more difficult to find things in those cultures that correspond to modern ideas than it is with the Buddhist text. You can find it there as well, but usually it... Uh, uh, relies on much more interpretation to be able to understand, you know, to make sense of these things. So again, I don't think it is likely. When the Buddha talks about the sun becoming warmer and eventually engulfing the, you know, and burning up the earth, and saying at the end, but you know, who will actually believe this because it sounds so outrageous? I think, wow, this is really astonishing. How could he possibly have known that? So uh, all of those things. Have, all of those things are unlikely as far as I can see here. So what does that mean? What does that leave us with? What kind of explanation do we have then for these things? And uh, the Buddhist, the one explanation that we then still have is the explanation, of course, given by the Buddha himself, how he knows these things. And that explanation is actually quite simple. Of course, it takes a different worldview. It takes a different understanding of the world from what we're used to. But what the Buddha says is that what I do, or what I did, or what I'm still doing, is recalling my past lives. And when I recall my past lives, going back and back and back, right, a hundred thousand past lives, then eventually he starts to see how the universe functions as a consequence of seeing his past lives, right? This is how, this is the Buddha's own explanation for how he knows these things. And you may wonder, well, how is that possible? You know, you're a human being, you're kind of this tiny little being in this enormous cosmos, right? Going, crashing together when the big crunch comes. How can you possibly understand what's going on? But again, this is about, from a Buddhist point of view, it is possible to be, you know, to, there's many different kind of levels of rebirth, many different kind of vantage points you can look at the world from. And after a while, when you see the world from many different vantage points, over long going back and back again and again, from eon to eon, universe to universe, after a while you start to understand what's going on. And then, when you start to understand what's going on, you start to see how this whole, whole thing functions, how the universe collapses together, right? There is the disintegration part. Then there is the evolution part. And how this cyclical universe keeps on going like this again and again and again. And when the Buddha then says that the sun will, in the future will engulf the earth, it's a similar kind of principle. It's not really a prediction about the future. What it is, is an understanding based on his knowledge of the past. And because of that knowledge of the past, he's able to make the inference that this must happen again. Because this is the nature of stars. This is the nature of this sun that we see. He understands the nature of the universe, how these things work. And that's why he can say, this will happen again. So this is what the Buddha is doing, right? He's just recalling the past. And that is the Buddhist explanation for how the Buddha could have known these things. So, what does all this actually mean? Right? I'm mean, talking about all these things, and probably you wonder now, what is all this? Why talk about all these things? You know, okay, what has it got to do with my practice right here, right now? It's important to get back to those things. Sometimes you kind of get these highfalutin ideas. Uh, you get away from the you know, present moment, which really is where we have to do things, and get things sorted out. So what, wh why all of this, wh why all of this stuff? Uh, and the first thing for me that occurs to me when I read these things uh, is that if you want some good evidence for the idea of rebirth, there's lots of really good evidence for the idea of rebirth, right? Uh, but this is just like one more little piece uh, that for me actually is evidence uh, for the idea of rebirth. Basically because there is no other way that the Buddha could have known about these things. Uh, here is a man who lived in a very, quite a simple culture, right? India, two and a half thousand years, very simple, no internet, right? All those kind of things, uh, very basic things. And when you live in that simp simple culture, you're kind of sitting at the root of a tree, right? Imagine yourself going into the jungle in India two and a half thousand years ago, and you see this man sitting at the root of a tree. 
And yes, you know, he's, he's a very impressive man, right? You see him very peaceful, very calm. When you talk to him, you get this feeling of enormous compassion, enormous understanding, this wisdom. You ask a question and he answers you in very simple terms, but with great profundity. And you get this feeling of somebody who is really special here, right? Somebody very special here. But still, it is still hard to really grasp what's going on there. But then uh, you, you look at the suttas uh, and you start to realize who the Buddha actually was. Uh, he had this mind that encompassed basically the whole universe. Uh, he understood all of these things that was, was going on uh, through the recollection of his past life. Uh, so not only is it a good evidence for the recollection of past life, uh, but it says something about the Buddha as a person. Uh, right? You see this man sitting at the foot of the tree uh, and it's like he has the whole universe in his, in his mind. He has this whole idea of uh, universal expansions of big bangs and big crunches uh, in his mind, understanding what's, go what's going on and relating it all to rebirth and to aliens out there and all these other kind of things. And you get some feeling for somebody who has a very different kind of viewpoint and uh, image and vision whom the vast majority of, of us actually have. Most of us, we're trapped into our own little world, right? This is my world. This is who I am. And we are missing this big picture of things. And this is one of those things that makes the Buddha so astonishing. And when I read it, I think, wow, that simple man at the root of a tree actually is really somebody extraordinarily profound, with extraordinary abilities. He has developed his mind to a point where he's able to see and understand things that are absolutely astonishing. He knows more about cosmology, at least in some areas, than we probably even know today. So it gives that feeling of the Buddha as somebody really, really remarkable. His enormously expansive mind. And it's not irrelevant. You may wonder, you know, why would the Buddha even talk about things? But remember the Buddha's search when he went forth from the home life and he went into homelessness and decided to become a monk. Remember his search was a search for finding happiness. He wanted to find an end of suffering, an end of this round of birth and death, right? All the problems in the world. And of course, to be able to really fully understand happiness and suffering, you have to understand the big picture. You can't just look at this life and say, I understand everything about happiness and suffering. You really have to understand the whole universe. You have to understand the potential. Where might I get reborn? Is there a place where I can get reborn where I will be safe? Where I will be last forever after? You have to understand everything. Only when you understand the big picture can you make a decision about where freedom from suffering actually exists and where true happiness can, uh, can be attained. And this is why these things actually do matter. So, you know, when I read the things, I, get this, I start to get this feeling about the Buddha. The Buddha is a man, right? He's a person, just like each one of us here. But there's something going on inside of the Buddha. The mind of the Buddha is extraordinary. And this is one way of approaching the Buddha, to see the profundity of what is going on. At least for me, it's, it's very... It's, it's kind of powerful, you know, even when you start to get into deep meditation, that of course is when it really starts to come together. But even these ideas give you some idea what's happening here. But having said all that, I was really recently discussing with somebody about some similar issues on some kind of forum somewhere. This was basically a forum where we were discussing about a translation of suttas and these kind of things. And I mentioned this because I thought this, this is pretty, this is really powerful. And he said, yeah, you know, why do you worry about that? You know, this, shouldn't we really focus on the core teachings of the Buddha? This is all kind of, you know, why, you know, it's interesting, but let's go back to the, to the essence. And actually, it's a very important point, right? He's making, is this really to do with the essence of the teaching? Yes, it gives us some idea of the Buddha as some kind of remarkable person. It gives us some sense of rebirth, perhaps. But how does it fit in with the broader view of Buddhism? What is it really about? Does it really matter? Is it actually something that really uh, we should focus on? And of course, the interesting thing is that when you read these suttas that have these particular explanations, the Buddha doesn't say, well, this is my philosophy of the universe. Here is the philosophy, you know, take it or leave it. That's not how it works. When the Buddha talks about these things, they are like incid incidental matters. 
These are not the core things that he talks about. He doesn't present a philosophical view. He doesn't present the cosmology that you have to take or leave. What is an incidental matter to other things that he's talking about? And those other things are the real Dhamma. And these are just illustrations of that real Dhamma. And this is what is so powerful, right? This, it's like, here he's saying things that for me at least, are absolutely astonishing, coming from two and a half thousand years ago. But the Buddha is only using them as illustrations for a much more important point. So what is that much more important point? And uh, let us take the, the sutta with the sun, right? Where the sun becomes hotter and hotter, and eventually everything disintegrates, and everything is abandoned. Well, towards the end of that sutta, and this is the context, right? The Buddha says, this is how impermanent everything is. This is how unreliable everything is. This is how unstable all conditioned phenomena. Everything in the world is so unstable. And then he says, it is enough to be, have kind of repulsion, to be repelled by this. It is not enough to have dispassion towards it. Dispassion means give up desire, craving for these things. It is enough to be liberated from all this. This is the bigger view, uh, the idea of impermanence. Uh, so this is right, the carry home message, right? The idea of impermanence. All the, all the other stuff is kind of by the by. It is okay, incidental things. Actually quite interesting when you look at it. Uh, but from the Buddha's point of view, it's a side issue. The real issue is impermanence. Uh, but of course, when we hear talks about impermanence, it's not as exciting, uh, right? Uh, but actually this is the real deal. This is the real stuff. This is what we should focus on. Impermanence is what matters. So let me just talk very, very briefly about impermanence, very, very quick, just to finish off this talk, because it is so important. And the first thing to know about impermanence, the Pali word for this is anicca, anicca. And it doesn't just mean impermanence. To me, the idea of impermanence has always been a bit like, you know, wishy-wash, not really sure what it means. What impermanence, what this word actually means, is like unreliable. Right? Anything which is truly anicca is unreliable. It's like an unreliable friend. If you have an unreliable friend and you ask them if they can do something for you, you never know whether it's going to be done or not, right? The world is like that. If you ask something from the world, like Ajahn Brahm likes to say, if you ask something from the world, it is likely it will not happen. And yet we are always asking things from the world. This is what attachment is all about. When you are attached to someone or attached to something, you're basically asking them to be there for you when you need them. And of course, one day they won't be there. So impermanence, unreliability, instability. Very often when we talk about impermanence, we talk about impermanence as something we do in meditation practice, right? You sit down, you watch the impermanence of all phenomena, you watch your mind, you watch your body, and you see how things are kind of arising and passing away. This is one of the favorite ways of talking about impermanence in Buddhism. But one of the interesting things, it's not that that is wrong necessarily, but one of the interesting things is that the Buddha actually talks, usually talks about impermanence in quite a different way. For the Buddha, this is a big picture thing. And very often the Buddha will start off with say, saying that well, all the things around you in your life are unreliable, they are impermanent, they are unstable. If you attach to them, you're going to suffer as a consequence, right? Our possessions, everything we own in this world, our friendships, our family members, our partner in life, all of these things will eventually have to go. Often they go before you die, at the very latest when you pass away. Your status in this world, right? Our status, our sense of identity is very much, has very much to do with this world because it's this world that we have built up the sense of identity. It has to do with how we fit into the network of things. This is my identity. I'm a Buddhist monk, right? If I cling too much to that, when I die, I'll be very disappointed because I won't be a Buddhist monk anymore because the spirit that moves on is not really a Buddhist monk. The spirit is just a spirit, right? Maybe you have, I wonder, maybe you have Buddhist, I wonder whether the spirit has robes. I don't think the spirit has robes on her. The spirit kind of just moves out, right? So you lose your robes and you think, no, I was so monk life was actually very good, right? The Buddha says, cling on to those robes because they're going to give you a lot of happiness if you practice in the right way. But at that point, you can't cling on anymore. That has to go. Your status as a monk, right? 
whatever that is, uh, uh, our occupation, our whatever it is in this world, and so many things, our education. Often we think about our education, our success in business life. All of these things, everything we identify with, all of that has to go. So this is the Buddha telling us about impermanence. So don't cling too much. Don't hold on, otherwise you'll be in pro have serious problems. Then he talks about death. Death is also a serious problem, right? Everything again being impermanent. But then, and this is kind of the importance, right? The interesting thing about the sutta, with the sun kind of, you know, becoming warmer and warmer and disintegrating the whole earth. Everything is impermanent. Absolutely. Our whole civilization, the whole planet Earth, all the cities, all the things that we're trying to build up, all the things that we've been taking so much care to try to keep in this world, absolutely everything will be gone. History will be wiped away. There will be no more history anymore. There will be no more humans. You know, you may, even the people who kind of create a legacy and are remembered sometimes for millennia afterwards, that too will be completely wiped out. Nobody will know anything about what happened on this planet a few billion years down the line, right? Absolute impermanence, absolute unreliability. This is how unreliable everything is. And then the Buddha, of course, says, as I was saying before, when you see that, when you understand the absoluteness of this unreliability, you stop desiring these things. You give up the craving for this, right? You become re actually repelled by it. You think this is all suffering. No, I don't want to have it anymore. And when you become repelled by it, and when you let go of the craving for all, thing, all of these things, this is the consequence of seeing this. Then you gain liberation. And that is what this really is all about. And in the meantime, we can talk a little, you know, a few niceties about Buddhist cosmology and all that. But this is the real message of the Buddha. Very, very powerful message. And that is the context in which everything else needs to be seen. Okay, so <laughs> there you are. That's the talk for tonight. Yeah. Okay, so now, uh, would, does anybody want to ask some tricky questions about Buddhist cosmology? Now you have your chance to, to uh, yes, <laughs> but is there a microphone for the, for the speakers? Okay, okay, back there first of all, okay, very good. Um, thank you for your talk tonight, it was very, very interesting. Um, first of all, about the aliens, um, Arjun Brahm actually gave us a talk on um, the alien abduction. And there was a lady here to, at the talk that had been abducted. And she spoke about that. And actually, I'm going to, tomorrow to a talk on um, the support group for a, people that have been uh, abducted by aliens. Okay, I haven't had yeah. any personal yeah. experiences, but yeah. just, just an interesting thing. Yeah. Secondly, about the sun getting hotter, um, that I feel that we as human beings need to take responsibility for what we're doing because the sun gets hotter because we're destroying the ozone layer. Mm. And, you know, that is so important. We're, we're destro destroying the forests, the animals are being killed, the, you know, the whole... We're, dis we're destroying ourselves yeah. through our lack of responsibility mm. and caring for ourselves and the planet. Mm. Um, industry and everything is taking over technology. It's actually destroying mm. our connection mm. with the simplicity of being uh, connecting with the earth. Yeah. And we're doing it. So it's, I've, I think that the mm. sun getting stronger and hotter is we're doing it. We're, we're yeah. actually destroying it ourselves. Yeah. Yes, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. I mean, one of the things that, you know, as I th one of the things, f from my point of view, it's a mor moral thing, right? It's a moral thing to look after our planet, for goodness sake. Why? Because there are going to be people, our children, I don't have any children personally, but, uh, you know, if, uh, if 
but for the future generations, but it doesn't matter if I don't have any children personally, but for the future generations, for my nieces and nephews, I have nieces and nephews, we have a moral obligation to look after this planet. This is what they're going to inherit. So these things are actually moral issues as far as I'm concerned, and I fully agree with you that we need to do that. But the point of this story in the Sutta is that regardless right, of how much we look after it, yes, we can extend the span a little bit, yes, we can do that, and we certainly should, I fully agree with you, but regardless of that, uh, impermanence and uh, unreliability is eventually going to destroy this planet regardless. Uh, and this is really the most important thing you know, for full development of the Buddhist path, uh, uh, as far as this is concerned. Uh, yes? Thank you, but I yeah. find that I, I, I disagree myself. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing about alien, I, I also like this idea of alien abductions because I, I think that the, um, you know, I think it, you have to take people's ideas seriously, right? When people have this experience, you can't just dismiss it and often you say that you are just crazy or whatever. People often have this experience. They're important to uh, take into account. And I think, I'm not sure exactly what Ajahn Brahm said on that talk. I don't usually listen to the talks that he gives here in Novamara. Uh, but I think they are, I think it is an important point. And uh, I, one of the, one of the inter other interesting things about the early Buddhist suttas, uh, which I always found fascinating, and I wonder why don't we see this in the present day, and that is there is often the meeting between humans and beings from other realms. You often see that in the suttas, right? Some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of interaction going on there. And I think that maybe the modern-day equivalent of that is precisely alien abductions or contact with these beings, right? What we're seeing is not some kind of uh, alien coming from a planet far away. What we're seeing are just beings that may you know, actually be among us already, be part of us already, but what we can't see for various reasons. And then there is that interaction going on, right? This is pure speculation, of course, but a bit of speculation is always fun. So that's my, my understanding of alien abductions, that's how I would see that. Yeah. Ajahn, um, the beginning of the universe isn't discernible, yeah. so I, I don't want to go, therefore the end of the universe isn't discernible. I'm wondering, is this some kind of nibbana state that exists, you know, in the universe uh -huh. that's kind of independent of the, you know, the destruction of the world and all the rest of it. Some kind of infinity would be the word I would use. Okay, well, Nibbana is the ending of things, right? This is kind of the point about Nibbana. So Nibbana is, literally means extinguishment. Something is extinguished. And the standard kind of simile that you find in the suttas is a flame going out. And the first thing that goes out are the defilements. Greed, hate, and delusion go out. And then the khandas disappear, right? So to say about Nibbana being a state is really misunderstanding what the point of Nibbana. Nibbana is the ending of things. And that's precisely why it is the highest happiness. This is kind of the weird thing about it, right? The ending of things is the highest happiness. It goes against our normal grain of seeing things. So yes, Nibbana is beyond this universe. Nibbana is nothing to do with that. And that's the escape from this kind of whole thing here. But you can't really say that it is a state. Once you say something like that about it, you're putting uh, things into which not actually meant by Nibbana. Well, what about, what yeah. about the beginning of the universe is not discernible? Yeah. It kind of implies to me some kind yeah. of infinity thing. Well, it, this is the thing. It may imply that, but you don't know, right? This is the thing. And this is why it's so powerful when the Buddha says there is no discoverable beginning, right? Well, for, for all... He, for all what he's basically saying, for all I know, it may very well go back to infinity, but actually I can't see back to infinity, nobody can see back to infinity, so he says there is no discoverable beginning. Very pragmatic, right? Very kind of, no, no kind of messing around, no theories, no metaphysics, no all this kind of stuff, just the bare bones of what we can actually know. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, great. Yes. Again, a short question. Yeah. Somewhere I saw uh, the previous Buddhas were all were born in India. And does it mean that even these uh, previous, the pre prehistoric times that you were talking about, the other Earths or the other planets also had a place called India for those <laughs> Buddhas to be born? Or what does it mean? <laughs> well, the, the answer to that question is that you have to understand that the, and actually I wanted to talk about that, that, that a little bit as well. You have to understand that the 
ideas in India at that time about the world were very different from our ideas of the world, right? Uh, their ideas of the planet Earth was very limited. They didn't know that there was such a place as Norway, right? That's where I'm from. I'm from Norway. They had no idea there was such a place as Norway. So as far as they were concerned, we didn't even exist, right? It was very, very, it had a very simple idea of the world. And the idea of the world was this Jambudipa. Jambudipa is basically a word for India. It means the rose apple island. That's what it means. And it was surrounded by seas on three sides, which India is. And that's what they know. And once you started to move outside of India, it was all basically mythology. They talk about the land called Uttarakurus. And Uttarakuru is outside of India. And once they start talking about it, they talk about our people who are three times as tall as ordinary beings, you know, or all this kind of stuff, you know that you are in a realm of mythology. So for them, the earth was basically India. That's what the world was. And anything outside of that was unknown. So I understand when, when the Buddha talks about Jambudipa, talks about India, he's basically talking about the earth, because that was all that was known about in those days. Maybe the Buddha knew more about the planet. It's quite likely that he knew more. Remember the famous simile. Actually, I, I should have mentioned that during my talk, but I forgot there were so many things already in there. But the famous simile where the Buddha says that uh, he takes up a handful of leaves and he says, what is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on the forest floor? And of course the monks say, well, you know, the leaves in your hand are few and the forest floor are many. In just the same way, what I have taught you compared to what I know, I've only taught you like the leaves in my hand, but what I know is like the leaves in the forest floor. Right? So the Buddha obviously has this very extensive knowledge, but he only teaches those things that are relevant for awakening. He doesn't teach all the other stuff. So he may, not, he may have known about that, but in a society when nobody understands what's going on, you have to speak the language of those people around you. So I don't think we should think of Jambudipa as India. I think we should think of Jambudipa as the earth. This is what they understood as the earth. So yes, you're quite right. On those other planets too, they talk about Jambudipa. So if you take it literally, there's India is out there as well, right? You have all this solar system and there's India out there and there is kind of four, four great oceans and these kind of things. But you, this is where you have to use your common sense to understand how these things were understood. And this is what I said before, there is always some degree of interpretation because our worldview is obviously quite different now from what it was at that time. Yeah. Happy with that? Huh? Yeah. Thank you. Otherwise. Yeah, you're welcome. Yes, P just wait, Priya. Just get get the microphone so we can we can hear, hear you properly here. Oh, so, okay. So what are we here first of all? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Good evening. Yeah. Uh, my question is: um, the Buddha made quite a lot of um, explanations of how the world worked, yeah. solar systems, how the sun's heating up, etc. I was quite surprised how you went on to explain how he explained how he was aware of this knowledge. Um, that he was living um, the experiences of his past lives. Yeah. So going one step further, um, does he explain how he has access to this experience of his past lives and yes. why, why people like us don't have access? Sure, he, yes, he does actually explain that. And that is a whole other talk, of course, to talk about those things, but he does. And basically the access comes through meditation practice, right? But remember, meditation is really what it is. It's a development of the mind. It's not just sitting down and watching the breath. It's actually a development of the mind. And as you develop the mind in the right way, meditation becomes more and more and more and more profound until the mind becomes so powerful. And the Buddha, this is again found in the early discourses, all of this is found in the early discourses, and this is kind of the core aspects of the early discourses, not what I've been talking about tonight. Until the mind becomes so profound that you can direct it to basically anything you want, any knowledge you want, right? The mind has the ability to recall, for example, the present life in absolute details. You go back in time. You go back in time to the point you were born, right? And then you try to go back a little bit further beyond that. And then at a certain point, the mind makes a jump. Right? It jumps, and then it jumps back into previous existence. And this is how you can then continue like that. And in that way, you can actually go on and re recall the past lives. It's just like you are recalling now. You're recalling what you had for breakfast this morning, right? And you know that when your mind is peaceful and quiet, when you don't have too many things going on, your ability to recall is greater, right? That's very obvious. 
Now you can make the mind far, far more powerful than what you have right now, even at the most lucid moments you have. Uh, far, far more powerful. So you can remember these things in, in much, much greater detail and you can make that jump into the past lives. Uh, that's basically how it works. Uh, yeah. Priya over here. Yeah. what he said uh, as part of what I was about to say. Okay. The yeah. fact that um, the modern world being what it is now, uh, it's all about Star Wars and other planes, yeah. and other planes of existence. The very fact that the Buddha said all this 2,600 years ago and purely by developing his mind, I think we just don't publicize that enough. And <laughs> asked, uh, I, yeah. The perception of the Buddha is mainly about the meditation and, uh, you know, so yeah. the, yes, the yes. world that is in yeah. the last sure. census, I yeah. think, said that yeah. about 27% Australians said their religion was Star Wars. So <laughs> well, yeah, right. Jedi, <laughs> the, the Jedi Knights or whatever, yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. I think uh, it yeah. would, uh, the fact that all yeah. this was... I, I think it, yeah, I, I personally find it very interesting, but I also know that many, some people find it off-putting, yeah, because they find that, yeah, this is kind of religious talk, you know, this is not reality, there is another explanation for these things. Sometimes you are so, you know, we're all set in our views in a certain way. This is just, you have to be that. You have to have something to stand on in life, right? Nobody's able to abandon all views and stand on nothing. It's just impossible. But what that means, because we are set in our views to a certain extent, it means that sometimes you discard things and actually have a solid foundation without really investigating it properly. And to me, this, actually, this stuff is really powerful. But other people are going to be put off by these kind of things. And I think, the, and I think this is part of the problem. So I agree, and this is what I'm talking about tonight. So I think it's great to publicize it a little bit. And I, you know, some people will write me off as a as a basket case or whatever. But, but uh, uh, I think the. Uh, uh, you know, the things which have to do with meditation practice, because it is so immediately apparent and so obvious what's going on, it is more easily accessible to people. And for that, for that reason, more broadly acceptable, probably, possibly. But I think, but I think you have a point, and maybe we should, maybe we should do something about that. Well, the fact is, they believe all this without any actual proof. Yeah. They are all theories. Hollywood theories, etc., and they are prepared yeah. to believe that. <laughs> you spend a lot of time watching all that. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that uh, you know you can that the Buddha did all this purely by developing his mind. Yeah, it's it's really mind blowing. <laughs> I think anyway. Yeah. Okay, let's have a look at some of the overseas questions. So. Okay, I will just get out my glasses because I'm getting too old now to be able to read these things by glasses. So. Let's see what this says. Okay, so this is the first one from Dira Yupa. Hello, Dira Yupa. I know Dira Yupa very well. She comes to the monastery quite regularly from Thailand. Uh, did the Buddha mention anything that could be interpreted as a theory of evolution when he talked about mankind? Did he say anything that could be interpreted as a theory of evolution? Uh, good question. Uh, I don't think that the Buddha actually talked about the theory of evolution. I don't think the theory of evolution is a problem from a Buddhist point of view. I think it's perfectly acceptable. I don't think that there isn't a problem there. But remember, the, the main point of the Buddha is the evolution of the mind, right? How we develop the mind. That is what really matters in Buddhism. Whether our physical bodies are kind of developed you know, through evolution, through gen genetic mutations and these kind of things, I, I think, it, you know, apparently the evidence for this is very, very good. So I don't have any problems with evolution whatsoever. Uh, but uh, I don't think it really is the kind of the main purpose of Buddhism. The Buddhism is about the mind, and the mind has a different kind of evolution. The evolution of the mind is explained through the laws of karma. They are what explain the evolution of the mind. And that is what we want to focus on, because once you pass away, it doesn't really matter you know, whether the next generation is going to you know, inherit your genes or what's going to happen to the next generation. If, if you pass away, you want to continue to develop your mind and to move in the right direction. This is what matters. And your, our physical bodies are kind of incidental. They don't really matter so much. We try to get rid of them. Even in meditation, you try to kind of get rid of that. So... Uh, I, I'm not aware of anything, and I think that uh, quite likely the Buddha may not really have, you know, understood that or been interested in that because it wasn't really part of the thing that uh, the Buddha was interested in. Uh, okay, 
Next question from over. Okay. This is from Upol in Sri Lanka. Uh, according to Ratanasutta, it can affect environmental conditions. Uh, is this true? Can chanting help people to be peaceful? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, this is a diff very difficult question, and I, I don't really know. I mean, the Buddha, there is a little bit of evidence, again, what we have to do here to be, if we're going to be serious about Buddhism, we have to distinguish between early Buddhism, right? The very earliest things and later Buddhism. So is there much evidence? Did the Buddha really talk about, you know, the chanting or the recitation of suttas? In those days it was more like recitation. And there is one very interesting reference in the suttas where the Buddha himself is ill, he's sick, right? The Buddha is sick. And he says to another monk, and this is quite remarkable, and I'm not really sure how to interpret this myself, but he says to this other monk, this monk is called Mahachunda, very powerful arahant, and he says to this monk, I'm feeling sick, right? Please recite the seven factors of awakening. Seven factors of awakening is very lofty teaching, very beautiful teaching. Uh, and then, uh, as he recites those seven factors of awakening, uh, the Buddha becomes well, right? And this is found in a few places in the suttas. Uh, so it is, it is, you know, so according to that, there is a certain power to the Dhamma. I don't know exactly how this works, uh, but probably something to do with the fact that you hear about the Dhamma, and that very hearing of the Dhamma gives rise to joy, right? A mind which is very joyful and very happy tends to heal the body faster. This is known in hospitals around the world, known medically that a, you know, a person who is positive, for example, will heal more quickly after an operation than somebody who is negative. This is, a, you know, this is basically an established scientific fact. So there is something going on there, but there is how it actually works is sometimes very hard, very hard to to uh, to know. Personally, I I do believe that there is such a thing as mind to mind interaction, right? So if I am, a, you know, or if or if the monks at the monastery we do some chanting and we spread, we send metta to somebody, if that person is in the right mind state and if they are receptive, they may be able to feel that, right? And sometimes we all have these experiences, sometimes some remarkable experiences of you know, feel, meeting people in a dream and all these kind of things. It sense that there is some kind of mind-to-mind -mind contact going on in the world. Coincidences, synchronicity they call it, that is hard to explain apart from some kind of mental thing going on. So I think so, but it depends on many factors, you know, whether it really works or not. And it's very hard to know. In the end, I think we're going to, again, we can maybe do scientific studies on this, right? To see if it really, really works or not. So can it help? Definitely, I would say yes for at least one reason, and that is the placebo effect. The placebo effect is scientifically known to work, right? So if you, if you say you're going to chant for somebody, straight away they will feel better, right? Because, oh, somebody's chanting for me. How, how nice that is, right? And then they will feel better straight away. It's called the placebo effect. So even if there isn't anything else going on, at the very least, the placebo effect is working here. So always good to chant for somebody here. Sorry for that slightly roundabout answer, not, not too clear. I don't, you know, it's hard to know these things with absolute certainty. Okay, last question from Night Dragons. Is that your name? I, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you talked about the body feeling light in meditation. But when I relax my body, it feels extremely tired and heavy. Do you have any advice for those of us who feel in this way? Okay, well, welcome to the majority, the silent majority, who you don't normally hear, often don't hear. Actually, you hear from them all the time, because when you teach meditation, it's a very common experience, right? You come to Dhammaloka Center on a Friday night, you've been working really hard for a whole week, you have family, you have kids, you feel burnt out, and all you really want to do is rest. And the natural inclination of the mind and the body is to go to sleep, right? You feel tired. And it's okay, for goodness sake, please fall asleep. I love it when people snore during the meditation. It's great, you know, at least they're relaxing, for goodness sake. And if we can't relax in meditation, when are we ever going to relax? Never, never going to relax if we can't relax here. So please relax, snore. Snoring is like a nice rhythmic sound, right? You take the snoring as a meditation object. Oh, the beautiful snoring. Please don't get upset if people snore. Have sympathy for them, right? They need that. They're falling asleep. So, and then you kind of make that a positive thing here. 
So, uh, yes, it is very common. And very often in the day-to-day -day meditation, that is what we're going to experience. In fact, I have a monastic friend, I often tell this when I teach meditation retreats. He's been a monk, he's a very good monk, he gets very good meditation. But he says that every time he sits down to meditate, the first 15 minutes, he's like this, right? Nodding away. And then when the tiredness clears, his mind becomes brighter. And then he goes into the bright meditation states. So please do that. Follow what some of these monks do, right? Because some of these monks get really, really deep meditation practice. So do what they do, you will maybe be heading in the same way here. So don't worry too much about that. Just know that as you practice the Buddhist path, all of these factors that tend to come together over time, and as they come together over time, your meditation gets lighter and brighter and more at ease. Your body and mind feel less tired. You feel more relaxed, right? You come to the meditation session, and year by year you feel things are going better. Then you go on the meditation retreat. And it is when you go on the meditation retreat that you really find out whether you are improving in your practice or not. And then you see that your tiredness falls away, right? Because you are away from your family, you're away from your job, you're away from all these burdens in the world. And people work far too much these days. They sleep far too little. All of these things are well known. We need to sleep more, we need to rest more. At the very least, when we go on retreat, we start the first few days by sleeping 12 hours a night or whatever, right? Really just go for it. And then you rest nicely. And then when you're nicely rested, then your meditation comes together here. This is how it happens. So notice that the only thing that matters is not how your meditation works now. That's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what happens in your meditation over the months, over the years. If you see that there is an improvement over time, that is what matters. That's really all you can be looking for because you don't know what you're starting out with. We're all starting out at different places. Don't expect anything in particular. The only thing you should expect is improvement. And then you're on the right path. Okay, so that is all for tonight. So let's pay uh, respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha.